Lord Jesus Christ, we love you and we adore you. And we admire the zeal that you show forth when you came into the temple that day. Lord, I pray that you would guard my words this morning as I open up your word uh, here to these people. May we hear from you this, Lord. Guard me and bind me from saying anything that's not of you. I ask this for your, in your name's sake. Amen. Please be seated. So a few, a few years ago, I used to work uh, Apple Retail, which, uh, let me tell you, has some great highs and lows to it. Uh, lots of fun adventures come from the world of Apple Retail. And some of you uh, might know the stress that's acquainted with this, with this store, especially if you've ever dropped your phone or if it's ever been submerged in water for any period of time or anything like that. And you've had to go to the Apple store. Uh, hopefully you've booked an appointment or else you're looking to sit around there for a couple hours, I guess. You book an appointment with the technician and you're hoping, you're wondering, I hope this isn't a big deal, you know? It's like, I hope I don't have to get this phone replaced. How much is this going to cost? Is there any chance that the technician would simply just give me a free phone? You know, and I know that these are things that people are wondering, right? So as a technician, part of your job is to, is to discern the truth of the situation. What is it that actually happened here? And the phone actually has these built-in triggers or things that you can look at to figure out what it is that's happened. And sometimes people actually try to hack these things, uh, try to cover up the liquid indicators, you know, all this sort of stuff. Really, really fun stuff. And so as a technician, what you would do is try to figure out the truth of what happened here, and then you would have to deliver back to them the difficult truths you know what, I, I'm sorry, sir, but this phone, uh, these, it's clearly been underwater for about 30 seconds or so, which means it, it's not going to make it. You need to buy a new phone. Or, hey, I can tell from the corner here that it had a pretty significant impact, and yeah, it's, it's not going to make it. You're going to need to buy a new phone. And people always argue or challenge or, you know, whatever. But every now and then, you're also able to present some sort of grace to the people who come forward. You know, you can tell, like, this is this is a horrible situation for this person. It's going to be setting them back, disrupting their work. And so sometimes the technician does have the ability, and you, you can't repeat this, this doesn't leave the room, but they do have the ability to swap the phone for you. Now, if you've got a busted phone, don't book an appointment and say, my pastor said that I can get a free phone today. That's, that's not how this works. So these technicians are oftentimes delivering both truth or grace to people. Uh, sometimes in the same conversation, sometimes in the same day, and whatnot. And in those moments, hopefully what you're doing is you're teaching the person. You're teaching the person the proper way to use the device and how to treat it, right? Uh, how to be a good steward of the thing that they have. Um, but then also, hopefully, they're learning more about the institution that, that the technician is representing. Uh, hopefully about the character of the institution. Uh, the desire to actually make them a happy person and productive person. So you, you probably, if, if you're a teacher or a parent or if you're managing a team, you're probably used to the idea of being over someone and delivering both grace and truth to people. In fact, masterful teachers are teachers who can wield those two things beautifully so that the student knows exactly um, that they are loved, but they also know the true way forward and the expectations of how to behave. Those pairings of grace and truth are extremely important in those situations. Well, to say that grace and truth are a theme to Jesus' ministry would be an extreme understatement. 
In fact, the Gospel of John starts off in the beautiful prologue saying that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. And some would even point to the first few chapters in the Gospel of John, specifically the first two um, signs or miracles, one being a marker of grace and one being a marker of truth. Now, it, it would be kind of out of line to say that one is only grace and one is only truth, but when we look at the, the wedding of Cana, it's such a beautiful portrait of grace, where in the midst of these people's shame and embarrassment, God provides for them in extreme abundance. And we looked at that last week in our sermon. Well, this morning, I'd like to look at the next chapter, or the next um, story that comes up, which is a story more on the truth side of things, or Stephen Colbert would say the truthiness side of things. So this is, this is a story where Jesus comes not bringing wine, but instead he comes bringing a whip to remove corruption from, uh, corruption from the temple and therefore revealing his truth. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I need to get better at folding these, these things. So what I would like for us to do this morning is to look at this passage of Jesus cleansing the temple, temple and you can open up your bulletins uh, and read along with me, and let's see what exactly is it, what's the zeal here that Jesus is showing us, what's the truth that's underneath the surface here that Jesus would like to show us this morning. Well, Jesus enters the temple, it's Passover, and immediately we see that Jesus is a devout Jew. He's going up to the temple for one of the regular feasts that's occurring uh, in Judaism, and this was a big deal. This was a big event. One of the three feasts that Jews would, would make pilgrimages for to Jerusalem to come and enjoy. And Jesus steps in and he does not like what he sees, does he? He sees that the courts are filled. These are courts that are designed for worship and they're filled with animals. There's cattle there. There's sheep there. There's lots of pigeons that are being there. It's a disgusting, smelly place. And there's money changing that's going on. Now keep in mind, this is important stuff. It's necessary. You know, these pilgrims, they wouldn't be bringing cattle with them where they were coming from. They would actually need to buy them. But this was happening in the midst of the temple itself. They would need to have their, their currency exchanged, but that was happening in the temple itself. In the temple itself. And it was absolute pandemonium. He constructs a whip. He drives out the animals. He flips over the tables. He's pouring out coins everywhere. Jesus is absolutely livid here. But why was he so angry? Why was Jesus so mad? Well, you'd have to understand what the role of the temple was in ancient Judaism. As I said, this was a destination for the ancient Jews who had been spread all over the Roman world and even beyond. They'd make pilgrimages here. They would come to the temple. They would hear from the expert teachers of the day, opening up the scriptures to them, sharing stories of God's deliverance, they would make sacrifices for sin there. And they would beseech God to intervene in their lives for sickness or sorrow or something plaguing their village. They would come to the temple seeking the Lord. And they would also praise him for the things that he had been doing, things in their own lives personally, but also things corporately. Ultimately, this is where people would come to encounter God. You know, in the other, gospels, uh, in the other synoptic gospels, we hear the story told and this is where uh, Jesus calls the temple a house of prayer. This is where people would come and intimately commune with the Lord. Well, that's not what was happening here this or that day. It was a corrupt place. 
It, was a, it had become a place of transactions. As you can imagine, if, if you've ever traveled outside of, of this country, bartering would, would most definitely be a part of what was going on there. People would be arguing over the cost of animals. Um, maybe the money changers would be completely out of line in terms of the rate that they were offering people, cheating people out of um, a fair uh, exchange. And so you could see here what Jesus calls it. He calls this a house of trade. He's like, this is not what the, the temple is for. He sees the lies of what's going on here. And he seeks to expose the truth of what the temple is for. And what does he call it? He calls it my father's house. You can hear in that this, this emotion, this desire for it to be this holy, sacred, sort of transcendent space where people can come and commune with their father in heaven. You know, it's supposed to be a place where both the rich and the poor come, where people from all nations come, the strong and the weak, and they worship the Lord. But instead, it's been turned into a house of trade. So last week's service here at church, we had a great time. It was fun, uh, both in the, in the service itself, but also with the setup of it. So here, this is our third week of weekly services. Last week was the second. The first week, I, I hope no one noticed, but there, there were some kind of kinks in the service. But the second week, it was really smooth. And Molly and I were just flying high. We're like, oh man, our systems are coming into place. Like, it was just great. And we're, we go home and we celebrate the Sunday and it was exciting. Well, then the next day we wake up and I go and I get the kids in the car and uh, I'm getting ready to drive them to school and I realize my door to my car is a, already ajar a little bit. So I sit down and, and my stuff's kind of all over the place. I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? Someone busted into the car and they took my little Bluetooth thing, you know, that was missing. I'm very upset about that. Uh, and so I'm driving the kids to school and Mara, my oldest, she's like, oh, at least they didn't break into our garage. And I go, oh, and I reach and sure enough, my garage door opener's missing. So I drop the kids off, fly down Minnehaha Parkway and get home and open up the garage, and sure enough, right where Molly's bike usually is, it's just blank. Nothing's there. So I text Molly, and she's like, no! <laughs> you know, this is a bike that she had received um, when she graduated college. Just, yeah, we're, we're pretty bummed about that. There's, there's a good story there, so if, if you're thinking, I want to give Rick and Molly a bike, just, just know we're taken care of. Everything's fine there. <laughs> you're a very generous crew, so I, I'd be worried that that might happen. Um, now, as you can imagine, in my garage, there's actually some weird things in there. As a church planter, there's just odd things that, that want to cruise in their garage. So one church had actually given us uh, a box of Bibles and hymnals. Uh, if you were at our Easter service, you remember that beautiful cross that we used? Well, that was in the garage. And I kid you not, the thief literally had to step over the boxes of hymnals and Bibles, had to reach over the cross to take the bike. And I remember looking in the garage thinking they, they, the cross that you built, Weston, and they had to reach over that stuff and I was just filled with rage. I'm like, you come into my house and you steal my wife's bike over all of these religious symbols. Are you kidding me? And I wonder if that's a little bit of the zeal that Jesus actually, that's just what I was experiencing is just a small drop in terms of what Jesus was experiencing that morning, or that day. I'm, I keep saying morning. We'll just assume that it was a morning. You come into my father's house and commit these heinous acts in the midst of this beautiful space that's meant to be sacred and transcendent and beautiful. 
And the disciples see this. They remember Psalm 69, and they say, this is, this is uh, King David's words, where zeal uh, for the temple is just filling his heart. And now we're seeing that being fulfilled in Jesus. Well, how do the Jews respond to this? They respond back. They say, what in the world are you doing here? What gives you the authority to come in here and turn over these tables? Who do you think you are? And Jesus responds back to their, to their desire for a miracle. And instead, he gives them a riddle. Instead, he gives them a riddle. And what he says, none of them actually knew what he meant by these words. We don't see the reaction of the Jews recorded here. And he says, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. The Jews are like, well, it took you 46 years to build this. Are you, are you kidding me? You're going to rebuild it in three days? But instead, Jesus was doing what he typically does, especially in the Gospel of John, and as we saw last week. His mind is constantly on the cross. He's constantly thinking of, of his, where his zeal will eventually bring him, which is to his own personal destruction, the cross, which is the ultimate sign of the authority that he holds, isn't it? Because this moment here, just like with every story that we read in the Gospel of John, is a sign pointing to the cross, where we are going to see God's ultimate rescue of mankind, because he was talking about the temple of his body. And so that temple, actually someday that temple will, uh, got destroyed 40 years later from when this happened. That temple was actually leveled by the Romans. And so in some literal sense it was destroyed, but also in a spiritual sense, Jesus is, well, and literally Jesus is destroyed, and then he is raised up as our new temple. To be more clear, Jesus is the true temple. If we want to experience the Father, we turn to Jesus. He's saying to them, you want to see a sign? Because of my passion for true worship, you're going to kill me. In fact, Jesus is the one who is whipped. Jesus is the one who is betrayed for a few coins that eventually get spilled on the ground. And Jesus is kicked out of the temple himself because of our shame, and he himself is put to shame. His destruction paves the way for our acceptance. The curtain of the temple is torn in two. No more um, pilgrimages or sacrifices that need to be made. Jesus is our new temple. And this is the story that gets told over and over in the Gospel of John, isn't it? In just a couple more pages in John, we see that Jesus is, is seeking worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then later, at the end of his ministry, he prays over all of his disciples and he tells them, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Therefore, abide in me, he says. So how does this happen? How do we abide in Christ? Where does this union occur? Well, theologically speaking, we believe that it happens at baptism, where we confess our sins and we are joined to Christ. We are cleansed away, just as if or our sins are cleansed away, just as if the corruption from that temple was, was cleansed away. And then we get un united with Christ. Through him, we get the full, beautiful and uh, experience of, of walking with God day in and day out. So at the end of this story, we see that the dis there in verse 22, we see that the disciples believed in the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, other passages conclude in the same way. In fact, the, the wedding at Cana concluded in the same way, if you remember from last week, 
where the disciples see the sign and their faith increases. In other words, they're seeing the grace and the truth of Jesus more and more, and their faith grows. They see the grace that was um, exhibited at the wedding at Cana, where they see the abundance of Christ on, on display. And then in today's passage, they see the truth displayed, that through Jesus we get full access to the Father, that Jesus is raising up a kingdom of worshipers, and that is grace and truth, that God can be known through Jesus Christ. You want to know who God is? You want to know who the Creator is, the one who who made you and has plans for you? Look to Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're going to have an opportunity to do this in a very real way. We're going to be able to come uh, not into a temple, this is obviously a, a gymnasium, but we're going to come into the presence of Jesus, our true temple, here at this table. And there's no money that's changed at this table, there's no sacrifices that are being made at this table. This is a table of peace, not a table of shame or of cleansing. No, those are things that have already been put to death long, long ago. This is a table of grace and of truth. And so if you're wanting your faith to grow this morning, I invite you to come forward, to come to this table and receive the bread, to receive the wine and be nourished by Christ himself and then be sent out into the world to be his ambassador of grace and truth wherever you might go. So with that in mind, please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we admire your zeal for truth. And not just any truth, Lord, but the truth that you are our temple. Lord, I pray for all those who have come together here this morning. Whether they have been here for weeks and months or whether or not this is even their first Sunday. I pray that this would be a time in which people can come together and meet with you the one who came to show us the fullness of grace and truth. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.